Good morning, campers. I hope you're ready for breakfast. It's time to get in the hole with us. I'm Tom. I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Bacon and Eggs. I'm jo- I love breakfast so much, guys. Whoa, Justin. whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's Justin this guy? Justin. All right. Exactly. I guess we might have a little left over for you. Right? Thank I'll, you so I'll, much. I'll hash something out for you. Oh, I love it. I had eggs on my dad's birthday. All right. Oh, listen, Justin, I know you like the stories, but there's there's another guy in the room. Who's that? Yeah, hi there. Uh, I'm Phil Wadey of Phil's Breakfast Metal Podcast. Yes. Hello, Hello yeah. Phil, and welcome. Well, I, I guess, are, are you welcoming us over there, or are we welcoming you? What, what are we doing? Welcome, everybody, to the internet. This is a collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're bo- uh, both welcoming each other, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we're, we're really glad that we could sort this out. It's been a long time. We, uh, we've been in touch with Phil behind the scenes. Phil's been in touch with us behind the scenes uh, for a while now, trying to uh, get this collaboration crossover podcast going between our two platforms. Um, and we're very excited because as we do, uh, the kind of common, common theme here with our platforms is we talk about death metal, uh, and extreme metal. And we, we try to try to pick up the rock and, and, you know, find the obscure band hiding underneath the rock that not everybody knows about and, uh, expose it to the world and everybody. Uh, and, and I, we, we got a good one. We, you know, we, we, we cooked up a pretty good discography that we're going to go over. I'm excited about it. Um, but before I get too excited, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna go in the back and hose myself off, and and we're gonna find out who this guy uh, Phil really is. We're gonna get we're gonna see see what you're all about, Phil. Uh, just for followers of the Heavy Hole Podcast who might not be familiar with you, um, and I talk so much that followers of your platform are gonna be sick of us uh, pretty pretty soon anyway. So 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 we'll get into it uh, in a minute. All right, sound good? Yeah, yeah, sounds great. Awesome, man. Um, yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about about your podcast and all that. But, um, Phil, you know the Heavy Hole Podcast. You know what we do. We're going to go back uh, just like the FBI right now, man. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing in the context of heavy metal, um, whether or not you are a musician or an artist yourself, uh, and whether that factors into your family upbringing uh, as well? Okay, yeah, so um, I'm from the UK, being based in Bristol or Wales, like most of my life there, and I'm about the same age, I think, Tom and Justin, so similar route into music as you guys um like so grew up in like sort of getting into music in late 90s early 2000s which is as like a lot of the more popular metal at that stage in time wasn't the best <laughs> so it took me a while to kind of find what i really liked you know went through the whole new metal metalcore phase and eventually like the discovery in that was getting into melodic death metal and then death metal and that's where, like, kind of a, a taste in music bloomed. I'm not from a particularly musical family. Like, my dad likes a bit of, like, prog rock, so had some of that growing up. Basically, the only thing of his I liked as a kid was a Black Sabbath tape, um, which I, like, sort of played repeatedly. And then, like, going through music, I was like, oh, nothing's really, nothing on TV is really living up to this tape. And uh, until, like, early 2000s, when I started discovering bands like carcass and so on so that was that was my kind of early route into extreme music was just finding those kind of offshoots of like the stuff that influenced metalcore i think basically it's such a hodgepodge of, of, of bands coming out at that time like you said some not so great some some are right some are worse uh but but like it all kind of like i think it, it kind of ties into this theme of, of who we've decided to cover on the show um a bit because of how how influences uh 
combine and then you reach out backwards. Like, I don't know. No one has the same path, so we don't judge the path, you know? <laughs> well, it, it's, thank, thank you for that. Thank you, you for this. You, yeah, and I shouldn't be too... I, I don't mean that as a whole of, like, all music from that time period is terrible. It's just, like, what seemed to come to the surface maybe hasn't quite had the staying power of what was at the the kind of top in, like, the early 90s by comparison, I guess. I think that's fair, more yeah. than fair to say. I watched the Godsmack Voodoo video again uh, <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> and it, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah, it doesn't. Depends how much of that legal marijuana you smoke. Um... <laughs> But that, actually, it was a different drug fueling that band. But uh, regardless, we won't talk anymore about Godsmack. we got a much cooler band we're going to talk about. But uh, so, Phil, you talk about – I like how you put that into context because that's a big thing on our podcast is that I'm allegedly a little bit older than Justin and Tom, but just in a way where I was a little bit earlier on in the 90s uh, and, like, our, our perception of – because it's like it's an interesting point you have about the band we're going to cover later – um, if you're coming from more of that metalcore era and that was your introduction to extreme music, uh, I could see it. Whereas if you're coming more from like the 90s, the, the, like the, the full-on metal 90s, I could also see it. Like it's a very universal type of band that, you, that all paths lead to this band. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's definitely some interesting crossover there. Yeah, sorry. And to answer the second half of your question, I'm a bit musical. Like, I played in, like, a few bands, but, um, like, I currently have a fairly active band in the form Vivian, which I, I play bass for, which is kind of a kind of progressive, thrashy thing, but well, obviously not that active playing live at the moment. Like, a lot of stuff and that's come to a halt recently. But, yeah. Uh, your platform. How long have you been doing your podcast? So we um, coming up to five years now. Started it back uh, in late 2016 with my friend Rob, who was like kind of permanent co-host early on. Um, but we struggled to find time to do it really consistently early on. And about two years ago, I sort of changed the format to be more often me just monologuing about stuff. the The podcast for those who haven't heard it is. I'm not like these guys. I don't have the interviewing skills, so I haven't really um, <laughs> contacted other bands. It's mainly just me extremely sort of obsessively deep diving on individual albums. So like a typical episode, I'll choose four or five albums and spend 10 to 15 minutes dissecting every element of them I can, mainly from kind of a, an interpretation of the music point of view rather than being the perfect historian on it because, uh, well... I find that that stuff can get a bit messy, like. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's it's just a kind of obsessional dissection of music, and it sort of came out of those conversations me and my friend Rob used to have. But um, like it, later, it's moved on to just being something of me sort of monologuing, or you know, on episodes where I'm very lucky to be joined by guests having sort of back and forth conversation, like hopefully we'll have today. Yeah, and and that's why. Um... Uh, well, you know, we appreciate the compliment about the interviewing, but it's it's just a different format, and there's a big uh, common interest, a big crossover there. Just for for listeners of our podcast who might not be familiar with your format, because it's um, something we've actually been neglecting to do on several recent episodes. We've been doing longer interviews, and we haven't been recommending albums as frequently, uh, which which we are working on because that's something that people do enjoy because you know. Everyone likes to maybe get a different perspective and hear something. I, you know, I even like you know just hearing Justin or Tom telling me offhand, uh, you know, something new that they heard or something old that they heard for the first time, 
And that's kind of like what you know. Your 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 podcast is is great for you know talking about turning up the rocks and finding up the you know the weird albums and the obscure albums. You know what I mean? That's kind of uh, you know the, the task at hand. So it's a nice parallel to our format because, like you said, the whole interviewing thing. But like, you, yeah, you, the way you dissect like a discography and put a lot of work. It's like the Ken Burns of death metal. It works really well. Like you put, you put your time in. And it's, it's a great listen, and it's a very different approach. Definitely recommend it to all of our listeners. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for very kind of you. <laughs> so now that everybody's all warm and comfy, gathered around the fireplace, about to play our favorite albums, are we ready to get into it, guys? Let's do it. Phil? Sounds good. Okay. Uh, Phil, I'm going to let you do the honors uh, to introduce to the listeners um, maybe just today's band. Uh, and a little, just a little background, a little introduction to the band we've chosen to cover and their discography. Yeah, so th- this was a band like Tom. Tom sort of hit me up with the idea to cover this one. And actually, for me personally, they were sort of a, a newer one to me, but because they've got quite a digestible discography, I found it quite easy to get into. So this is Intestine Balism or Balism. I'm not quite sure, but I think both pronunciations are okay. The Japanese melodic death metal band. Um, they've been around since the early 90s and always led by uh, guitarist slash vocalist Seiji Kakazawi. And they've put out a, a grand total of three albums and a few other bits and pieces. But they're a band who have always been sort of consistently really interesting for... I said melodic death metal, but I always found them really hard to classify in one genre. They have a lot of... Um, a lot of different energy and a lot of different influence from various death metal subgenres I found on all all three of their their albums, and they seem to be one of those bands that, while kind of fairly underground, I don't hear them talked about that often. I have never seen sort of negative commentary on them. They seem to be extremely well loved uh, for the sound they like for that kind of style, um, especially for sort of being popular in that era of basically their like primary active years are between about 97 and 2008 so when this sound was maybe a bit more kind of underground yeah yeah i i mean i remember them personally in maybe when i got into things like 96 97 98 um that anatomy of the beast the first album and the, the demo and and like they were out there and i would see them covered in zines sometimes and it was really this weird kind of anomaly that a band from Japan was kind of doing the Swedish sound. And not, like, the whole HM2 thing was an anomaly back then, man. Like, who, like you know, we, we knew Dismembered and Entombed and so on and so forth, but the idea of other bands taking that was fairly fresh. And maybe then a few years later you see Impaled from California and even Exhumed, they started dabbling with that or so, but Intestine Ballism was way ahead of the whole charge. Especially like now the HM2 thing is like a um, a very widespread phenomenon right now. Everybody loves it. Every, the you know, formula's hard, been figured out. Hardcore right? bands are adapting the HM2 guitar tone to their thing, and it's just everywhere. They're going to reissue the HM2 pedal. It's in cereal boxes. I got <laughs> Apple Jacks the other day, an HM2 pedal. And once again, one of those sticky hands yeah. you throw. Yeah, and it was yeah it's HM2. all over. But intestine ballism was doing it before anyone. And I, and I really. just want to point out, like you know, you're focusing on that, like that Swedish style that they adopted, but like that's not even their whole sound. Yeah, like that's yeah. just cracking into the. Yeah. So that's a very. You're right. You're right because it's yeah. a very surface level aspect of intestine ballism. I feel like yeah. on the first, like you know, the demo on the first album. 
the Swedish uh, influence on the composition and the songwriting was a lot more prominent. And they that's my uh, my whole thesis on their discography I'll get into later is that they branched out stylistically a little bit through the years. But um, just the idea that they were adapting that Swedish sound and then, uh, you know, obviously doing a lot, a lot of maybe I also say mixing it very organically with like the second wave kind of Nordic black metal influence. And, and again, in a way you wouldn't expect, man, just be- a beautiful, articulate uh, songwriter right there, man, is the, you know, the, main, the main guy. Uh, what's his name? The guitarist? The lead guitarist through the years? Uh, Seiji Kakuzaki, I believe. Uh, it's, uh, do you, may, Phil, you, you, I know you're very uh, well-researched. Uh, it, he's like, I understand he might be a music teacher, if I'm not mistaken, or something of that nature. You're more researched than me on this one. I've not found a great deal of that outside of um, outside of his work with this band. It's that's hearsay. I can't confirm or deny that. But I have. I did hear. I remember having a conversation years ago. I I believe it was with Paulo, of course. Uh, And I I I think the guy is some sort of virtuoso musician who teaches music or something of of that nature. And it's not surprising when you because the thing about intestine battle is when you first you know you put on the the first album or the demo and you listen to it, you're like, wow, these guys, okay, kind of entombed, dismemberish type of thing. And then and then the lead. That a harmonic lead guitar shines and glimmers through, and it's like, all right, the edibles kicked in, right? You know, it's like, all right, it's you know, good, you know, turn the phone off, it's going down, like you know, it, it's it's a yeah, really you've, amazing. You've band. identified like a big part of the sound there. If they they seem to have these songs like often built around like they're gonna, it's gonna have the massive lead guitar moment in the middle. That's like sort of the sudden center of attention in quite a lot of their tracks, and that, that kind of goes through the whole discography. If suddenly Seiji will come in with these solos that are just like melodic beauty in often yeah. quite extreme sounding songs otherwise. Yeah, it's like the it's like a, a, a volcano just cracking open and the light floods the room. Like these solos, I mean it's it's hard to put into words, but if you really are just like focused on the song, it has this brutal kind of low end distortion, gravelly guitar tone. Uh, as they branch out through the years, there's a little bit more death metal, maybe a little more, you could say, like contemporary for the time death metal. I really enjoyed how on the third album, Ultimate Instinct, they explore groove. It was almost like they kind of caught up with like the late 90s death metal a little bit in certain parts. But through all that low-end gravel, like these these shimmering, you know, angelic leads and, and you know, sometimes layered with multiple guitar tracks... It's it's a it's an amazing sound. I mean, I don't know that anybody's really um, copied off of that. It's almost I, I look at it as maybe even a precursor to something like what Fallujah and bands like that do with the real ear candy layered guitar leads. But intestine ballism, obviously, a little bit more organic, you know. Right. Should we uh, should we jump into the discography then? Like work through that in order, and we can probably <laughs> expand oh, yeah, yeah. out some of the theories around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of uh, go freestyling here. Yeah, yeah. Phil, uh, bring us back. <laughs> in. I don't mean to cut you off, Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm just I'm getting lost. The edibles are kicking in. No, I'm, I, I didn't do that. Before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, um, yeah. So the first release, and I'll probably need to run up on this album title. So their first demo, well, only sort of demo release, was in 1995 called the Engumenus, um and it's this kind of it's a ni- really nice contained thing of like a short 20 minute sort of four track thing tops and tail with fairly kind of unnecessary intro and outro but 
the core of it is this, like, as Will pointed out, that kind of real HM2 worship. It definitely had that kind of sound. I remember, like, sort of the second I put this one on, because I heard it a lot after the albums, it made me very happy because it just captured some of that magic of those early Swedish demos, like the kind of rough and ready kind of recording with that like front and centre like massive um, guitar sound, and like it sort of sets a template for what will happen on uh, Anatomy of the Beast, the, the debut album, which features a couple of tracks off this one but it has a different energy to it I felt it's it's kind of like nastier and grimmer than anything else they've put out, like they hadn't quite... Um, found that point of like really sort of rounding off the harsh edges like they did later on it's quite a, quite a i don't know quite a kind of angry release in that, that vein of those a lot of those early swedish demos um yeah I, I really enjoyed it it's just it's quite a different sound it's definitely not one where i would put it in the melodic death metal category it far more felt like a, yeah a, what you would call a traditional death metal album well, what I found it, it's interesting because you, you, I agree with what you're saying. Um, you say you, the the intro and outro you kind of characterize as a little unnecessary. I love the intro and outro about it as a total package, and I think it speaks to though because like you're saying it, like it, it doesn't. You wouldn't classify that demo as melodic death metal the way you would later releases, right? That's that's kind of what you were getting at, and I think that yeah. those ultra melodic intro and outros that almost sound like um, you know music from a, a like a movie or like a children's movie or something like that, like really like dreamy kind of beautiful little soundscapes. It's almost like they were trying to introduce that beautiful melody component at that point, and they just hadn't found a way to to mash the peanut butter and the jelly yet. You know what I mean? And then later on in the later releases, they found it. They were able to explore that sense of melody uh, and that real clean um, uh, harmony with with the lead guitar solos, you know, and stuff like that. Instead of just kind of having like you know, here's your clean intro, and then we'll do this the brutal song. You know, like very separated. I think that's fair, actually. Like, they're not in any way bad pieces of music. It's just they they have that sort of, and it is really common in albums at the time. They just have that slightly lurching change from the the minute long kind of beautiful keyboard intro, and then yeah. suddenly death metal. It's a very sharp contrast. When we interviewed uh, um, Mike from uh, Nocturnus, uh, he talked about that when he was talking about why he added keyboards Nocturnus. He was like, because all these bands have these cool intros. And then as soon as that intro's over, like, you know, the, the sound quality dips and it's a rehearsal tape or something like that. You know what I mean? So, it, he, you know, that, that's, it's funny because there are a lot of demos like that back in the day where you're like, wow, I wish they would have kept playing the keyboards, you know, or something through the whole demo, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, um, and I, that was recently reissued, I believe. Um yeah, it's, it's got a nice new package, uh, recovered, and yeah, I'm not sure what label put out the, the reissue. I want to say um, uh, obliteration. Hold on a second. I got, I'm on Metallum. I'm very open about using Metallum. I don't hide it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, prof- I don't profess to know all this stuff off the top of my head. Yeah, it was reissued on Obliteration Records in 2019 on CD, man. See, I, I, I know this stuff, Phil. No. You just know it. There was no <laughs> editing there. Yeah. No editing yeah. whatsoever. I, I just know it. I just know. No, I'm just kidding. We happen to be talking about a band I really like today, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. But um, I don't know. Any, any other thoughts? I don't want to hog the, hog the floor on the demo before we move on. No, I didn't get to soak in the demo too much, um, but I mean, I enjoyed it. I think that their their full lengths are 
fucking fantastic, so I'm excited to talk about those. Cool. There's only one other thing I want to add on the demo, which is something that, because there's a couple of songs that are on the, the first full length, this is where, like, where the demo still has a lot of value for me is they do have quite a different mix. So on a track like Tyrant, the, the closer of the uh, first album, which is also, I think, the first track on this, there's really prominent bass guitar, and the bass guitar has some really kind of interesting sort of licks and kind of almost like uh, leadish melodies around that kind of core melody of the song. And on the fight on the final album, the bass is near enough gone from the mix, so it's quite a different version of the same track. I couldn't say which one I prefer. It's just yeah, quite a different interpretation of the song, which I found interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, people always want to like put their best step forward. You know, take that demo, the favorite song, in the demo, put it on there. Sometimes it loses charm some ways. Sometimes it's recorded better. You know, it's a bit of a gamble. Yeah. And well, actually, before we get into the full length, too, uh, officially, if you look at their discography, uh, there's also the bizarre abnormality compilation tape. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna be technical here, we're gonna get down to brass tacks. Uh, that that has two songs that are listed as being on uh, the demo: "Torsos Conceive" and "Alistor Possess." I actually, a um, little bit of a flex, I have that split tape. I have the bizarre abnormality compilation at home. I I. I got to look at it, though. I don't believe it's a different record. It might be a different recording, or they might have just taken two songs from the demo. That was really common back then, because the idea with the split tapes is that you were just kind of passing, you know, promotional, like, you know, compile everyone's shit on it and, and get it out there type of thing. So that might have just been songs off the demo, um, just just to be, like, the completest uh, uh, here with the discography. But um, uh, Anatomy of the Beast, do you want to move on? Yes, so that brings us to 1997's uh, An Anatomy of the Beast, which is their debut full-length. Features, as I said, two tracks off of the, the demo, but an additional sort of seven. And as Will sort of mentioned, they, they've got better at like melding the sounds of the kind of more melodic... There's no intro to this, no keyboards, it's straight in with kind of the heavy riffing. And something I think that sort of stood out to me more about this than the demo was uh, Seiji's, like, vocals really sort of start shining on this album where you see, like, he has a real great range as a vocalist going from, like, these incredible highs, like, often, like, really soaked in reverb and then having this more kind of sort of low, slightly less enunciated, like, guttural, which, again, for the genre is, is quite an intense, like, vocal style. Actually, I find both his vocal... Like both of the, the two major styles he goes for vocally to be quite like kind of harsh and aggressive sounding um, uh, and like that's mixed in with just a lot of the stuff we were speaking about of like really fantastic riff writing often throwing back to kind of slightly older era of death metal um, and then these just absolutely amazing kind of melodic lead sections yeah, yeah, and I would also venture to say that the, the kind of Nordic black metal uh, sound is a little bit more prominent, um, little cu- coming out a little bit more with Anatomy of the Beast, uh, maybe, you know, in line with how they're trying to meld the melody. I feel like the sense of melody um, in that band, it's also, I don't want to veer too far off topic here, but in a lot of those old Finnish bands, um, particularly, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Depravity and uh, Depravity Silence of Centuries album, if you're familiar with it. There's a yeah, similar. Yeah. Okay, so there, you might see where I'm going. There's a similarity in the melodies and the really dark kind of uh, black metal style 
uh, uh, song structures that Depravity was using uh, and intestine ballism, uh, in my opinion. And it's kind of like taking a little bit of that Swedish death metal formula, but making the leads and the lead guitar work more Norwegian sounding in a way and more Finnish sounding, darker. Whereas like the Swedish bands would kind of, there was something, it's it's not, um, uh, it's, it's maybe it's, maybe it's, it's a little bit more melodramatic sounding, mm-hmm. whereas the Finnish bands and the Norwegian bands would make it kind of darker and obs- more obscure sounding, if that's fair to say. You, got, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I can totally see that. I think that Silence of Centuries EP is a, actually a fantastic comparison because that is another one where, I, it's much like with this band, if you removed all those like lead elements, those kind of like middle eight sections, it would still be absolutely fantastic death metal, but they add in that, that sort of weird departure from the otherwise quite... Um, yeah, kind of harsh and quite dark kind of sound, and yeah, I can certainly see some some more like Finnish influence in in the overall atmosphere. Yeah, those those like dark foreboding uh, parts that shine through just give it a lot of personality. Um, yeah, it's kind of strange how like that album does have like blatant two step style riffs mm-hmm. in it that you know like are like early, you know the 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 metalcore uh, post hardcore scene of of like you know new york and stuff they just ate that up and like i'm listening to this and like i grew up around that stuff but i never dove in so they were like listening to this i was like i know these swedish bands i'm not like i'm not a stranger to them but like for some reason the way intestine ballism puts them in their songs and the specific riffs they wrote they somehow would appear in my head in like in bands i really don't listen to and aren't all that heavy which is strange. Like one that came to mind was his band Rufio. Like I don't like them. My, my buddy Mikey used to play them around me all the time, and just like that two-steppy riff that happens on track two, like all the way through. That's like that that kind of stuff. And then like track four, right in the middle there, there's like these parts that like show up in this like more New York or California style like um, like um, pre-metalcore stuff that was going on. And um, it's not like intestine ballism was taken from that pool. This is before that. Um, I just felt the way that they were doing it was so original. It was it was an original take from the Swedish thing, and then it just happened somewhere else. It, it probably speaks to a common pool of influences. You know what I mean? Going back to like just the, the old school hardcore crossover, yeah, thrash. I mean, Japan has a rich history of hardcore punk uh, and crossover stuff going back to the eighties. So absolutely, no. I just uh, I found it strange that they like encapsulated that sound on this album, like, yeah, well, and it's they, totally disconnected. Um, no, yeah, they're just so good at drawing in different sounds into one unit. You know what I mean? Like they don't, you know, a band like Between the Buried and Me can can bring in a bunch of different types of metal, but it sounds kind of like a patchwork quilt. It's like here's your part, here's this part. Now we're Pantera. Now we're death metal. Now we're this. You know what I mean? And then then you play the piano for a minute. You know what I mean? Whereas like Intestine Ballism, they can kind of like they kind of switch from like the Nordic black metal to death metal with other other influences, like Tom's saying, but it's all under the same thing. It's all under the same flag, and it all sounds like intestine ballism from song to song, you know? And they're really good at doing that, because like you said, too, his, his vocals, he has a really good death metal voice, but he also has a solid black metal voice, and he really uh, leans into it during those black metal parts. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's really well put, yeah. They, I, I like the idea, like, I think that's why they're so kind of successful album to album, um, sound-wise, is because they somehow, as you say, like, meld all those influences which on paper would sound you know quite chaotic and switching like styles too regularly to sound quite logical like uh, 
they never throw in anything where I'm like, oh, I, you know, I, that was an awkward change between riffs. That was for a band that like mesh a lot of genres. It seems very natural. Yeah. Well, it's you know I don't know too much about the inner workings of the of the band. We do know that there's the one lead member who's kind of kept it going through since 1991. And they're listed as yeah. still presently active. I know they've performed live. There was a fest that Paulo said he saw them at just a few years ago. I was uh, watching the uh, Asakusa Death Fest performance that's okay. on YouTube. Um, and uh, I believe that's, yeah, 2018, playing live. Okay. And, man, they, they were so fucking tight. Like, I just watched this one clip on YouTube, and it was great. It was just like, they are fucking crushing it. And that's, uh, you know, if he's, if he's still doing it, that's, uh, uh, what, 30 years? I mean, that's pretty uh, impressive. And so what I'm getting at, though, is if it's just the one, the one guitarist, the main guy who's been holding the band together all that time, it would make sense to, to imply a little bit that maybe he's the, he's the head songwriter, and a lot of that is his vision. I'm sure other artists have collaborated, have been in the band through the years on those albums, and that might account for some of this, the stylistic you know changes through the years. But when you have one one driven songwriter who's driving the whole band uh, uh, something I've seen this in personally is just like if you look at Geigen the band from Chicago here in the US um, like, love him or hate him I don't know if, you, if you're familiar but just just to make the point that the one guy Eric the lead guitarist it's his vision it's his you know he, he's 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 the captain of that ship you know what I mean It's and some bands are like that and you, when you hear that bit, you can appreciate the singular vision in the songwriting. So that might account for maybe what's going on with intestine ballads. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I'm definitely projecting him as being the sort of the guy in charge just because the lineup seemed to be quite, you know, quite changing album to album. Yeah. But you never know, though. They might have been far more collaborative. It's, it's, it's hard to tell without seeing the actual credits. Yeah, of course. But... But, you know, it, it would make sense, too, man. It, the, the guy, you know, he's obviously got to be some sort of virtuoso musician. Um, either way, with you know, with some of the stuff that, that they pull off. And I just also, it's interesting to me, because I remember that this album came out. It came out on Rela uh, Repulse, not Relapse, Repulse Records, the Span uh, Spanish label um, that is uh, legendary. We got to reach out to Dave Rotten, the guy behind Repulse Records, singer of Avulsed. Um, and he was also behind Drowned Productions, which is a classic OG death metal. Put out the first edition of uh, Sermon of Mockery by Pyrexia. D Drowned Productions put out a lot of real classic death metal. Um, Ken's Death Metal Crypt uh, YouTube channel, shout out to him, has got a whole video he talked about Drowned Productions and just a lot there. Uh, and I think Dave Rotten is still behind Extreme Music. So just, but that was a part, that Intestine Ballism first album, Anatomy of the Beast, was part of a really strong Repulse Records run in the late 90s, I remember. Um, and really stood out, too. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, I, um, I guess so the only other things I sort of wanted to add on this one, which I, I've sort of really enjoyed and realized they kind of become a staple of um, Intestine Ballism sound. Like they do this on every album is they seem to do this kind of really cool transition between songs. I don't know if, if you notice this. It's, it's not so obvious if you're not, like, watching the tracks kind of transition, but they do loads where they run tracks, like, perfectly into each other, where it almost sat... Like, it's it's an album where it's very hard to tell where one song stopped and another started. There's the particularly great moment on this one where you get um, Blasphemy Resurrected goes into a place their God's left behind, and it, it just doesn't sound like anything's changed. Like, there's a whole sort of drum intro in the ending of one song 
that perfectly builds into the opening notes of the next, which I felt I, I don't know, it really, really sounds amazing. And that um, live video Tom referenced, they put those two together, and it sounds like such a kind of natural progression in a live set. I, I, I don't know, I really enjoyed that touch to it. It, it really, again, I think it really implies of kind of like a mastermind vision behind the composition and the songwriting, even to the point of how the songs are going to be ordered in, in the in the actual album. And yeah, either you know, there's something. There's a, regardless of um, of our speculation as to as to how many people, how many chefs there are. It's obviously a very nuanced uh, um, and and well planned and well thought out project. So, uh, Phil, you want to bring us into the uh, the second intestine ballism album? Okay, so this next one, we move on six years, 2003, for their second full-length, Banquet in the Darkness, which we there is a massive change in the band's sound, and I think a huge amount of this is probably just down to the fact that six years, a lot's happened in terms of what recording an album looks like. But one of the sort of major developments in terms of the, the lineup is uh, Heisho Hashimoto has joined on drums, who... Um, He's still with them to this, well, as, as far as I know to this day, he's certainly on that, that 2018 live video. And I feel his, like, his introduction to the band definitely sort of injected something because he, he's a very good drummer. Like, at those live performances I've seen of him, he's, he's got an incredible energy. And there's something that I know like, the album sort of immediately grabbed me a bit more with the kind of rhythm section side of it. The other thing that's really kind of notable about... Uh, Banquet in the Darkness versus An Anatomy of the Beast is it's far more kind of clearly melodic. It, uh, I think the the kind of lead guitar and that, that side of um, the sound is far more front and centre right in the kind of opening couple of tracks. Like, so for me, it certainly struck me as a far more kind of melodic and kind of catchy album versus a kind of slightly harsher debut. I would agree, and that to me kind of shows just more progression if you go from the demo to Anatomy of the Beast to now Banquet in the Darkness, the second album that we're talking about. Um, again, just those melodic parts, those like really catchy signature, uh, uh, beautiful lead lead guitar parts coming out in the mix even more. I felt like on Banquet in the Darkness, it sounded like they leaned into the black metal a lot more. Like when the black metal came out, they would really go in and kind of, you know, the vocal patterns and everything. It wasn't kind of just a black metal riff here, a black metal lead here. There were a few times where they go full black metal for a while and then they come back to the, the more traditional kind of Swedish influence of test and ballism sound. It was um, a really interesting album, kind of breaking breaking out a little bit, I think, from from the, their traditional sound more. I think they also introduced some different like chord structures and progressions in here that that really differentiate the two albums. Um, there's there's like from a guitar player standpoint, you just hear these like chords that were totally absent on the first one. Uh, not to say the first one's lacking, but it's just the, the newer ideas and ways to transition uh, from one progression to like a more brutal part. They would use something that, I don't know, for lack of a better term, jazzy. You know, they would use like a jazzier chord to yeah. kind of dive from one area to another. You're absolutely right. You know, something I got to uh, occasionally, not the whole way through, but there were certain uses of chords that reminded me in a way of another Japanese band that has a completely different sound. But but but, but hang with me. Clotted Symmetric Sexual Organ... Not all the time, but especially later on in their discography, when they when they branched out, would use very kind of jazz and kind of psychedelic rock, even influenced 
uh, guitar guitar chords and progressions, and especially sometimes uh, in the rhythms to accent layered lead guitar parts. And every once in a while, I kind of notice something where it would just, you know, you, you notice it's not typical metal. It's not typical dark metal chords being used to maybe accent a lead or something, you know, going on. But again, it always works. And intestine ballism doesn't make it. He doesn't make it sound carnival. You know, you mean, you know, what I mean, he doesn't. It, they don't. They never really break the 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 mood or the atmosphere. Um, no matter how virtuoso they get. Yeah, it's it, they, their writing always seems very tasteful. The songs are yeah. like for for all Seiji's like incredible kind of virtuoso guitar like mastery. His, his solos don't go on too long, and, and like their their songs are quite condensed in that way. Like I I really really admire kind of yeah the restraint in a lot of the songwriting, and as you say, like when using kind of more complex chords with transitions, it's still kind of natural in there. It's still, it doesn't feel like. You know, they're, they're going, it never feels like they're going into like a Gorgut's dissonant part or something really like left field. It It is logical. It's just, yeah, not not the norm, I guess. That was a huge selling point for me is solos not going too long. I think that's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a great <laughs> yeah. um, compliment of, of, like you said, showing that restraint, but still being uh, 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 incredibly, uh, like, like showing off the incredible uh, musical proficiency. Uh, whilst while not taking away from the the songwriting, also no wankery. Like there's yeah. like really no like noodly parts that don't make sense or just thrown in there. Like the guitar play, you know, I just want to show off I could sweep kind of shit. Yeah. No, it, like every note makes sense and it's got yeah. a purpose. It's cool. It's great. You know, yeah. it's a note I have of a lot of uh, technically proficient bands where they show off a little too much. Cool it, it yeah. cool it guy. Exactly, it takes away from from what we're all here to do listen to good songs you know what I mean? yeah well i mean yeah go ahead phil sorry yeah. oh i was just gonna say it's, it's particularly interesting well like 2003 i think was very much the era of like the shred guitarist being king like that was you know when people like jeff loomis were coming up as like really popular like new guitarists um so yeah it's interesting to see a band like being so restrained because it's a time where actually you could do quite well for you being sort of slightly more self-indulgent but as as sort of Tom implied like these solos are so well crafted they're just brilliant pieces of melody yeah I think Tom I think you and I went to go see Steve Vai in 2003 I think that that was yeah that's true yeah I saw enough notes that year so this works Well, it, I mean, if I had <laughs> really to, into the G three, uh, 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 same shit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if I had to sum up the whole intestine ballism uh, discussion in one word, I think it would be tasteful. Yeah. You know, that just speaks to everything that's going on. I mean, everything is just perfectly placed. You know, um, ar- perfect architecture on, on you know everywhere. Um, and uh, this, it's funny because you know you talk about it's. It, 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 it's a considerable uh, amount of time uh, taken to record this. It comes out in March 2003, which is several years after the first. I don't know what the source is on this um, other than Metallum, but on Metallum, uh, for additional notes, it actually says, the album's recording process from beginning to end was mired with lineup changes, time constraints, and various pitfalls and setbacks beyond the band's control, hence the differences in the mix and lineups with the album. Um, recorded between 98 and 2001 at uh, Influence Recordings. So that that speaks to a little bit, I guess, why there was a little bit of a, a time lapse between the albums. And, you know, again, this is kind of just speculation, but it might also speak to 
why things are so perfect. Uh, they took the time and maybe even made sure that that personnel changes took place that had to take place to get everything right. I don't know. You know? Spending that amount of time recording and, and keeping consistent sound is impressive in and of itself. Yeah, well, that the album spans a lot of different types of metal and atmospheres, but it does maintain like a consistent atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's something actually you can you can sort of hear hear what Will's talking about there. If, uh, with track ten, the planet does just suddenly sound quite different to the rest of the album, and I think there there's like a new guitarist, a new bass player on that song, and I assume that was one because those who would go on to be with the band a bit later, I assume that must have come late in that like long recording process. It doesn't affect the sound negatively or anything, but it is that thing when that song starts, you sort of go, oh, hey, this is. <laughs> is this from something else? But once it gets going, it's got their their kind of style all over it. And once the lead guitar and the vocals come in, you're like, okay, okay, I get this. But just the initial like, changeover I felt was weird. But that totally explains it, that kind of dragged out recording process. Yeah, I saw that on the Metallum. I was like, there's a lot of personnel on here. And two of them only played on one song each. Very yeah. strange. <laughs> well, you know, again, I'm just speculating, but sometimes when you have that one member who is in charge of the band and has, like, a vision, um, people come and go. You know, it's not always easy to work with uh, uh, everybody. You know, not, not everybody gets along, and it's not always everybody's fault when you're talking about a, um, a you know, a vision for a project like this. And, you know, this is, it's, it's a hell of an album. It's almost 45 minutes, 11 songs. Um, and, you know, we all know, we, we've been talking about so far what goes into intestine battleism. You know, a lot of precise work. So, um, came out on uh, Black End Records uh, in uh, 2003 there. And, um, uh, and any uh, final uh, uh, thoughts on this album? I guess the one thing I just wanted to say is like the thing this somewhat put me in mind of more than their other ones is I definitely got a bit of a later carcass vibe from this sound like that kind of heartwork era focus on sort of melodic elements around like sort of their heavier style certainly they've got a far harsher edge than carcass but it, it felt like that similar approach to melodic death metal where you, you can still see there's influence from a much heavier sound rather than say the more the classic like Swedish sort of earlier in flames model where it, it all feels approaching that kind of quite melodic idea you can hear the almost toning down like you know when you go see a band and they're like trying to play heavy but they don't really like heavy shit that much and they end up playing like metalcore or some shit like there's a total absence of like of of like understanding what heavy music is when you see a lot of band like younger bands obviously I'm talking about when you go see an open uh, like you know an opener and they're they're trying to be heavy and it's trying like, to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Like it's when you scale it back the opposite direction, it gets raw. And that's what we're seeing here. You know, it gets really fucking cool and raw as opposed to like this seems um, fussy. Try hard. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, the fuck are you talking? <laughs> I um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, you don't know <laughs> what I mean? I don't yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by that. I'm just saying when you go see a, a band that's obviously new, younger people or something, and they're trying to do something heavy, and their influences are still very narrow, and they're ex and they're not experienced songwriters. It's like the opposite. It's the exact opposite of what we're talking about here, where these guys are coming from a really heavy, like their experience. They're coming from a heavy area, and then they're actually lightening up to do some of the mo more melodic parts. Okay. So those parts still come across super heavy 
and well thought out. You, like you could tell somebody trying too hard to uh, approach a certain sort of sound, and that sounds maybe not the best. But when uh, when a band has it and they peel, like they they show restraint to yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, I to think play we a have laid bare yeah. the differences between intestinalism and immure. We don't need to talk <laughs> anymore about that. I'm I'm not going to stand. I won't stand for that. Um, I won't stand. But for I this. just did look up uh, um, this the the main guitarist, the main guy, uh, Seiji. Uh, did I get it right? Uh, I think that's how you pronounce that name. Yeah, Takazaki. I I, I you know. I, Jesus, just destroying the studio over here. Mike's falling everywhere. I looked up. He is credited for producing, engineering, mixing, and composing that album. So I think it's safe to say I, I would I would hedge my bets on that that side of things of him being the main man behind that, which would kind of explain this like megalomaniacal architectural. Uh, thing that you know that that I that I see going on with intestine ballism through the years, but you know who knows, man. Um, but that being said, uh, are we ready to move on? Uh, I, that's about everything for me. Yeah, yeah. The, so the final uh, piece of the trilogy, and uh, to be now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you guys. I am a total poser. I did not realize that intestine ballism put out a third album until only a few years ago. Um, poser. Yeah, I. I shit the bed on that one. I'm sorry. I, I, I think I actually. It might have been Paulo. It probably, of course, it would be Paulo. I said to somebody something about, we, you know, we were having one of these like gushing over intestine ballism conversations, and I said something to the effect of like, like, yeah, it's a shame they only put out two albums, and and, and somebody was like, oh, you know, there's a, no about the third album, ultimate. I was like, no, you mean the demo. Oh, they re-released the demo on CD. That's what you're thinking of. And, like, somebody had to kind of, like, conk me in the back of the head. Like, nah, man, check this out. There's you got slime. I missed, you know, 2008 was a weird year for me. I had a lot going on. I don't know how it happened, but I missed intestine. So I only heard that a few years ago. And um, it really was, like, a treat to hear it, you know, for the first time several years ago. And I never even knew it existed. And what, what smacked me over the head about it most was, like I said a little bit earlier, the kind of maybe more contemporary death metal influences that they that they squeaked in there but i don't want to uh give a give away the whole uh spiel on that too too much um i already am talking about it phil so if you don't mind i'm going to steal the introduction for this one uh <laughs> Go for it. my that's like i told the listeners of your platform that tuned in i'm going to talk so much you're going to be sick of me but kick flipping on the segue <laughs> yeah. yeah but in um 2008 on uh, no colors <laughs> records from germany you got ultimate instinct the third and final uh, album by Intestine Ballism, man. Really cool album. Really, like, I felt like just the culmination of the whole sound. Uh, the death metal parts are more death metal. The black metal parts are more black metal. And everything sounds a little bit more focused than the previous Banquet in the Darkness, which we explained was a little bit more of a drawn-out thing. Yeah, I, I, I would, would agree. This this really feels like the, the thing they've been building up to. For me, this album, like... <laughs> to like use a crappy phrase it felt a bit more kind of like cult like a bit more like yeah. dark and they, like they've gone for a far harsher sound than the previous album and actually like that black metal influence is there more than ever I, I the thing I kind of said to you the black metal influence has always almost changed to being more of like a Swedish black metal sound like I got a lot of like sort of dissection necrophobic naglafar kind of vibes especially from like the, the sort of the third track onwards they they sort of really go for that kind of 
I, I, I don't quite have to explain the difference between that and the Norwegian sound, but it seems to have that kind of element to it. But then the first half of the album, they throw in some really kind of interesting oddities. The, the opening track has a riff that I would near classify as like a slam. It's like, as you yes. say, take, you mentioned earlier, taking influence from like late 90s kind of pretty New York death metal mm-hmm. kind of style stuff there, which you, which was quite a surprise because this was the third album I heard sort of going through their stuff. I was like, not expecting him to go that route with it. Uh, no, absolutely, man. And it almost seems, um, uh, you know, like a suffocation or mortal decay or defeated sanity kind of thing creeping in there. You know, a little bit more rhythmic, you know, uh, like you said, groove oriented kind of thing going on every once in a while. They don't, you know, they didn't completely switch up the band, but um, it kind of. You know, 2008, that was already a well-established thing, was the groove metal and the slammy death metal and stuff like that. But it was like kind of maybe it it had been around and become such a big part of the scene that it finally kind of like cracked uh, Intestine Ballism's armor and and got in there as an influence a little bit too. And maybe with some of the younger members, newer members that had joined, uh, maybe it finally like came in there as an influence. influence. And it something again I got another thing I got to really kind of reference in that respect is uh Godless Truth the band from the Czech Republic uh if you're familiar we did an episode of why I think it was one of our first deep dive in the subgenre marines I kind of gushed over Godless Truth I have a whole Godless Truth fixation yeah they're like the um they're uh dying fetus adjacent correct? yes yeah, but yeah. they but they weren't always their first two albums they were yes sir yeah as they say on the internet, but actually, sir, uh, uh, the <laughs> the uh, I'm that guy with death metal. But um, the the demo and the first two albums by Godless Truth were more of your classical death metal uh, kind of technical European old school thing going on. And then their third album, somebody must have smoked them all out with a blunt and put Dying Fetus on because their third album they went full on groove. But they retained some of that classical death metal musicianship. Tom, I feel like it's a similar angle to what you're talking about with the the, the local bands that are trying to be heavy and they're not, and then the other the the, the the bands that know how to be heavy and they try to be a little lighter. That thing you were you, you were talking about before, yeah, yeah. Like like it's I'm finding talk- that equilibrium. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about like bands that are trying to be a little dying fetus ish, but they don't know how to do it, and they're you know wah wah, they're they're in diapers. But then, oh, I can't slam. Yeah, ah, but then, but then, like Godless Truth came along, and Godless Truth knew how to play like Morbid Angel and Death Influence stuff. So right. when they play a dying fetus, fe- when they meet you in the middle for the dying fetus slam, super effective. Has, yeah, yeah, so, super effective. Yeah. So now I'm meeting you guys all the way at the the end, the the the, the other part, the other end of my long winded tandem here, um, tangent here about how you know, when Intestine Ballism incorporates more of a New York death metal influence part, it has that virtuoso quality. Okay, they, yeah. It's, they, they put it on that palette of uh, brilliant, you know, Ivy League death metal, uh, you know, uh, influence. That's so. right. Yeah. If you, if you like you're cooking and you just put truffle yeah. on everything, you're like, this yeah, just what all tastes yeah. terrible. Yeah. You, you but don't, you hit a boom at the yeah. end with that truffle ice cream cone or something like that. You're like, oh, yeah. that's, heavy, that's heavy shit. Baked man. Alaska. That's, right. that's, that's that, was a, that was my nickname in high school. <laughs> Only white kid hanging out with a bunch of dudes smoking weed. Allegedly. Okay. I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, but but Phil, pl- please bring us home, yeah. Phil. We're, Phil, save we're, us, save <laughs> us, Daphne. Phil, you, you, this is what you yes, bargained sorry, for with us. Here. We're, we're like, out here. I have that weird thing of uh, because it's a podcast I listen to all the time. Like, oh, this is a really good episode of this. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in it. We're breaking the fourth wall. And we're pulling you back in, <laughs> Phil. 
bring the lifeboat over from the United Kingdom and bring us back in. We're all the way out here in deep waters. Uh, let's talk about Ultimate Instinct. Yeah, so as I, as I mentioned with Ultimate Instinct, I think it's got this kind of like, like a more black metal atmosphere to it, despite having all those the other influences we've mentioned. And it just felt at that point where all the cool ideas they had were like coming together all at once, whereas like Banquet in Darkness may have had slightly less to the heavier edge. This is somehow combined that with the ultra melodic. Like the second track of this album has that lead section where it goes full on kind of like almost faux flamenco guitar like acoustic mm-hmm. section before the big solo comes in directly after we've heard a track get kind of as kind of low and brutal death metal as they're gonna go but it all has this lovely natural flow and then moves into as i say that more kind of um swedish black metal sound and i think so much of making that work really well is Seiji's like amazing vocal delivery where he's switching between a lot of different styles on this album but it all I, I don't know I think it just really adds to that kind of varied sound that still still is like very engaging and not not ever too eclectic I, I don't know why there's something about like kind of constantly switching his vocal approach that kind of I don't know maybe makes it easier just to expect okay they're going to throw any kind of riff at us next yeah, the consistent vocals through that, like, or or the consistently harsh vocals through all these movements, just uh, further solidify like how uh, how it's thought out between those transitions, and how it never sounds like it's going off the rails. Uh, you know, something you just said, Tom, made me think. I gotta respect the complete absence of clean vocals. Yeah, in this band's catalog, that would have ruined everything. If they just went for that one part where they brought in a, a singer or something, you know, like a power metal guy or something or whatever. They don't need it. But, um, uh, you don't know, uh, it, Phil, you actually, something, uh, you just kind of articulated something I was getting at before and I, I didn't have the words, but flamenco guitar. I know exactly the part you're talking about where they incorporate the flamenco guitar because that's what I was talking about before. I got a little twisted up thinking about it, but when I, when I compared the clotted symmetrical sexual organ, a CSSO got really into flamenco guitar in certain songs later on in their discography, and they got really wacky with it. Um, but, but yeah, intestine ballism incorporated it in a very tasteful way. There's that word, tasteful. And if you can imagine incorporating flamenco guitar into a very melodic death metal song tastefully, um, that then you got a bigger imagination than me because I had to hear it to believe it, but they did it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I like the, the thing you touched on with like the no use of clean vocals, like no, I think I'm right. This no real use of keyboards through the discography either. They're very, they're very restrained with that. Like they've kept it to the the guitar death metal vocals. Like yes. it's all, yeah. They they haven't had to add anything additional to create those melodic moments. It's all within what they can produce as a live band, it would seem. Meat and potatoes. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. look, at, uh, look at Death, especially later era Death. There's, you know, there's a lot of bands that um, uh, really do, that, that really do genre-defining, genre, uh, you know, boundary-breaking things, progressive things within the context of extreme metal without incorporating clean vocals. You, you know, just... If a band wants to sing, if somebody wants to incorporate clean vocals, you know, then that's that's their thing. Go ahead and do it. I don't care. But just because you decide to incorporate clean vocals doesn't mean your your band has made some huge step forward 
or some huge step to define extreme metal. It's like, no, you just incorporate clean vocals. Like, there's plenty of bands that do all sorts of different things with their songwriting, their composition, their performance, their instrumentation, everything, well, their arrangement, you know, and yes, you could still bark and, and do, do growl. You don't have to start singing clean just to show that, you, you know, you, you've made progress or something, you know. That's my rant about yeah. Crazy. yeah. Oh, I, I agree with you. With Prague, like some bands are just like they add clean vocals. And that means that mean that means they're a Prague band. Well, more, a band more people can like us now. Slash progressive. Something yeah. we you know we kind of touched on this before the before we started recording. Justin, I don't want. I'm not going to spoil it. But the band that you're bringing in for your your yeah. recommendation at the end of the show, they kind they in a way they later on leaned into the clean singing a lot, and mm-hmm. it's like you, you didn't really have to. Definitely did not have. To. Didn't have to. <laughs> Come on, it's okay. But now that you're here, you know, I, now that I met you, I talked to you, I like you. Yeah. You're here, so that's fine. You know, but, I would have liked you anyway. <laughs> I liked you anyway. Yes. How, you know, how about that? If you kept growling, I would have liked you anyway. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Approved. Yes. So, yeah, so Ultimate Instinct, the uh, final intest, But they are technically, like we said, they're still active. They've performed in the last three-ish years, right? Like, yeah. So, it, I haven't followed up on any social media with them, but is there any? Have you seen any news of anything like that? Any like a fourth album planned? Or, no, we're not going to do it. Yeah, so this is that? this is the thing in the research I found is just been like really weird of them. So we we have that video of them playing 2018. There's quite a lot. There, there's good videos on YouTube like last sort of 10 years, lots of different points in time. There's been like in that video, I, I don't know. Um, if you notice it's on like there's the interesting development of their their new guitarist on Ultimate Instinct. I mean, obviously he's been with the band like over a decade now, but uh, Kenji Nokopa um, starts doing vocals. He's, he's like they've split the vocal duties up for for live purposes, which wow. wasn't true in 2015. So there's like an evolution happening with the sound. That's cool. but All right. the band don't that. have any social media presence, and I don't know if you guys noticed this when listening to um, to Ultimate Instinct. It's barely online anywhere. Like it's a really buried um, album. Like No Colors Records, I think are still an active label, but I couldn't find this on any kind of streaming or usual download platforms. It's yeah. just the first two everywhere. It was. I could uh, be wrong yeah. in this though. No, no, it was just on YouTube, and um, it didn't have a lot of plays. And I think it was pretty recently listed the whole album. So that leads me to believe it keeps getting taken down or something. Yeah. Um, that that makes YouTube. me feel better for not having known it existed until a few years ago. Uh, that's no excuse. You didn't even know what the internet was Stop. in 2008. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> until we started the podcast. Don't make me look stupid in front of Phil. We have a guest here, Tom. We'll talk about this later. Well, uh, either way, um, I mean, we've seen this before. We've seen the whole, like, people fighting, like, earache taking down all decapitated stuff. Like, it's that's their only job. That's yeah. that, like... It's back. It's back now, but, like, the last five years, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, like, I wouldn't say I'm the most mad I've ever been about anything because of that. Like, this is not, this is not going to ruin my day, but it's just like, why is this not here? Like, what petty fight did these idiots get into that they can't just put the album up there? No one's making any money on it anyway at this point. Uh, Like, Tom, I regularly allow things related to death metal to ruin my whole day. 
especially when it's when it's bands I've never even met, and I was just like my opinion on things. Fair enough. I mean, I I'm slightly ticked off because I had ordered organic hallucinosis from uh, Russia. Of all um, places. you and, should uh, watch. Don't get it sent to your house. Try I got get, some, like, another address to get that yeah, sent. Exactly. All I'm saying, you, you is want that ricin. I, I got a guy, Tom. You don't need to buy that stuff through the mail. If they they're going to legalize that out it soon anyway. Two weeks prior, I would not be on the CIA watch list. Okay, yeah, that's. But now I am, and it's because I wanted to listen to the album and I couldn't find my old copy. Some of my favorite goalies are Russian. You microdose that stuff. They say it's good for depression. Sure? I dude, I have organic hallucinosis on MP3. I could have just burned you a CD. Yeah, allegedly, yeah. alleged. All right, no I more bootlegging just, talk. I could just right. burn yeah. you. We are we are incriminating ourselves. If anyone is bootlegging ultimate instinct, holler at me though, because it is it is very hard to find. <laughs> yeah, I'll take a copy. I intestine any intestine balism re released re released on vinyl or cassette would be like on my wish list, man. What? All this shit coming out. Somebody's got to holler at them. I well, I hope it. You know, maybe it is something where like they have trouble with the labels that put these albums out or something mm-hmm. but out of all things somebody should reissue these mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's ridiculous that only I think only the first album ever got a vinyl uh, issue of it I think back in like 2012 a German label put out a vinyl version of it but I think that was a really short run by the looks of it like it's the cost of fortune to pick that up on like discogs now and I don't I don't think you can buy it direct from the label anymore and everything Shame. else just came out on CD and it's and as I say, you can't even you can't even stream or do like a legal download of um, of Ultimate Instinct. It's not on any of the platforms. It, as I say, that that YouTube rip, uh, I think, ain't from last year. As, as Tom pointed out, it's, it's the only way to listen to that, short of buying a secondhand CD. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. It's it's weird. There's like this weird, you know, not not political political, but the politics of the internet and like you know these publishers working with these streaming platforms, which. You know, a lot of these streaming, even though they're convenient, they're they're not. It's not a bright future. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, if this shit keeps happening, special, especially for people um, in our situation who like to listen to you know good music and shit, um, you're gonna you're gonna hit a brick wall like this when you're trying to find sick music. And uh, like, I guarantee you, within the next six months, that that copy of the latest. But the last intestine ballism album is not going to be on YouTube. It's going to be an NFT. Yeah, it's going to be an NFT. And <laughs> they won't even be the band. No, but either way, physical media, I guess. Yeah, we need it. Uh, check it out. Uh, bands uh, that haven't put out stuff in a long time. If you happen to be listening, you know, you found uh, the, the, uh, this is two podcasts that we're putting this out on. Right. So we're casting a large net. Uh, just that, uh, you know, at least a little bit. Yeah. Maybe throw us a bone. Heavy hole records. We want to buy. We have listen. We have a lot of money, <laughs> and we want to buy everything. So. Yeah. Okay. Put up the signal. Okay. Uh, so I think we're moving into the the next part of the show, really, with the hidden gems. Uh, but do we have any other thoughts well, on intestine ballism yeah, before? Hit the brakes real quick, Tom. Um, <laughs> uh, no, those drum breaks. I, I think you're right. Uh, but yeah, Phil, we talked a little bit about Ultimate Instinct, the final album by Intestine, or I should say the third album by uh, Intestine Ballism. They're still active, apparently. Uh, and how it's uh, a little bit hard to come by uh, nowadays. Hopefully they reissue it. But do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you want to talk about with that? So, so the only thing I want to say with Ultimate Instinct is it's one I would highly advise everyone to track down because it's got, it's got a lot to it, which is a slight improvement on the previous albums like it has 
probably the best album cover they've ever done. Like, I really like the art style of this one. It's the first one that um, the the lyrics to the album, while not the most complex, are are a cool little concept. It's a it's a full a full story about like a rise of like an antichrist type figure. So it's definitely one where if you can get the physical thing and sit down with a lyric book, I don't know. It's, it's a good album for that and. Yeah, so I definitely advise people go out and hunt that one down, even if it is, yeah, sadly, second-hand copies only. And, and all that stuff, though, is why I felt that was the real culmination for them, because just everything sort of came right on it. It sounded more natural because it wasn't the drawn-out recording process, it seemed, and got the album covered just right, got the lyrics like the best they've been. Yeah, I really enjoyed that side of it. Yeah, what, what a shame. Somebody's got to reissue that, man. Great, great um, under... Uh, credited uh, band Intestine Ballism and just again to sum up that's Intestine Ballism from Japan long running death metal band uh, we spoke about their demo their bizarre abnormalities compilation appearance and their three full length albums uh, good luck happy hunting because it's not <laughs> unless you know obviously you could do the YouTube and stuff but if you want to get that physical copy man yeah happy hunting um, and uh, it doesn't stop there uh, as Tom um, uh foreshadowed. I was, was going to say that too. Yeah, also, I know you're doing a 900 on the Segway right now, but I had one more thought <laughs> that I wanted to share some food for thought uh, about intestine ballism and like the genre jumping kind of uh, approach their songwriting. And uh, I was having a conversation with my buddy Andy yesterday about this. And he pointed out that um, not not to say that the folks in intestine ballism were like watching anime or something like that while it, before they wrote their songs. But if you look at the like the temperature of how like mainstream Japanese culture gloms onto genre mixing, it is far more expressive than ours. Uh, you know, o- over here in the states could ever be. Sing it, Tom. Um, so like using anime intros as like a a litmus paper for like how genre mixing works like intros to shows like Soul Eater and like Jujutsu Kaisen Mob Psycho 100 One Punch Man if you listen to these theme songs they're fucking insane like there's 10 different genres just bumped into like a minute and 30 and that's it and they just like they're like oh okay welcome to the show and it's like it's like a speed like it's like a speed trip the whole thing is just like insane so like I just wanted to like point that out, I guess. Like, the cultural um, willingness, ex- uh, yeah, willingness to like hear multiple genres pulled into like one roof, and um, it not being like this weird anomaly, um, mm-hmm. and how how we perceive that. And also look at some of the bigger bands over there that are are you know, uh, even something like baby metal. Like what the hell is that? You know, and why is that so popular here? And how did that get so huge there? And not to say the two are tied and never shall they meet, but there's something very different about yeah. how they're looking at music and how we look at music. I think that's a great point, Tom. I can go into like a, maybe a couple hours about how Japanese pro wrestling is a big uh, mashup of a lot of different styles and genres and, and whatnot. But I think that's a that's a really good point to where maybe uh, it's it's more cultural than it is over here, um, where you, you kind of stick to your lane a little bit more. Yeah. So I just want to bring that up because I was soaking in this and I just heard. Like this effortless, uh, beautiful songwriter that went back and forth between very melodic and epic swells to 
just brutal, brutal, guttural stuff, and uh, and how it seemed somewhat logical, I suppose. I um, tuned out when these guys started talking about pro wrestling and anime. Uh, I just want to talk about death metal. You still with us, Phil? <laughs> I'm still with you. Okay. Actually, the the kind of genre mixing thing is kind of um, kind of interesting because the last episode I did was a deep dive into the Japanese black metal band Sai, who are right. I was, well yeah. known as the, the the genre mixing kind of masters. Like, I mean, they go totally overboard on it. Like, whereas it is a bit more like illogical in their case. But yeah, maybe that maybe it is kind of something in the water over there where bands are just that much more happy to to not sit in a lane of this is the style we should be following these rules like like expanding a bit outside the norm because that's a band that's you know come from the early black metal scene and yet kind of defies a lot of the rules whereas sometimes that scene can be a little dogmatic right exactly yeah you see will (laughs) i brought a point i (laughs) i brought a point i just i just (laughs) we break balls but uh um Maximum the hormone. Check that out. I I'm not as familiar with the anime culture. Tom is uh, Tom is steeped in that industry. I do it for work. Yeah, I couldn't even say I love it. So, but I just know about it. And and Justin uh, is trying to uh, convince me on a weekly basis to give Japanese pro wrestling a try since yeah. I'm. Yeah. I'm a nostalgic pro wrestling fan. I really can't get into modern. I know fighting. there's just uh, Von Erichs dude and uh, Ric Flair <laughs> brother. Yeah, but wait, but like uh, fucking Tanahashi, the Ace, the once in a century, uh, once in one hundred years. This is not a wrestling show. We're going to get. We're going to get there. Yeah, that's what I said. The Von Erichs bro. Yeah, I, I, I'm a nostalgic <laughs> wrestling fan. All right. Hogan dressed as a pirate last night. Yeah, wait, wait, wait to show me that I should check out the modern <laughs> product, Justin. That really, wow, that's great. What's up? This is a heavy old podcast about death metal. Yeah, <laughs> Will, so, hey, doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm chilling. So I'm trying to bring it back to death metal. Yeah, please when, do. When you're done, you guys are done. Um, <laughs> so. I get what Tom was implying there um, about the genre, the genre mixing, breaking it all up. Uh, I, you know, I'm not a well-educated man, but I can follow your your lingo sometimes, Tom. Uh, and uh, now, I should say I, I, I'm a little hesitant to get back on the segue. I mean, can can we move on? We can or? get on. Yes. Okay. All right. It's back. So, in the Phil, um, you're uh, you're kind of like the guest because there's three of us here and there's one of you there. I, you know, I don't know who's the guest and whose house here, but. Uh, I'm going to give you the, the the floor now to close out um, uh, closing thoughts on intestine balism. Okay, yeah. So um, I think that the thing with intestine balism and why they're a band, like even if maybe sort of less active in terms of releases recently, that are so worth revisiting because they have a sound that is fairly unique to them. I can't think of another complete comparison band, someone who does the same thing, and they're a band that have done that incredibly respectful thing of. Although they've not put out a lot, they have never put out anything short of like an excellent album. All all their material is so worth revisiting. And and like looking for live footage in the now, they well, you know, three years back, they still seem to be on top form as a band, like just absolutely fantastic musicians writing this incredibly well crafted melodic death metal. If you're someone who especially has a lot of time for the more melodic side of things, I ain't this is a near essential part of one of those collections, even if, yeah, maybe slightly less known than than some of the more staple bands of the genre. 
Absolutely, I concur, 100%. Absolutely, man. Um, and I'm glad that we were able to devote this amount of time to you know I've, something I've always wanted to do with the podcast is break down discographies of an artist who I respect everything they've done and you know sometimes we get to, like episode to episode I get to kind of do that with someone I interview but you're talking to them about their albums which is cool and it's it's fun but it's always fun as a fan to kind of go through it and dissect it this way and and give our own interpretations of things and our our you know our um theories on things like that and uh, you know we've done it once or twice we had like an atheist bonus episode a long time ago when we first started doing the podcast and we haven't re- been able to really get back to it uh, like this so I'm really glad that we were able to cover um, one of my all time favorite uh, bands um, if I had to put like a top ten of, of death metal bands it, they would probably be somewhere on it because they're so unique and original man I agree and I'm gonna just I'm gonna I'm gonna force myself um, hard stop to talk to stop talking about intestine balism now. As we move forward, uh, in, in case that's not enough uh, for you greedy bastards out there. No, I love the listeners. They're good people. We, we appreciate you bearing with us this long. But in case we haven't recommended enough great stuff for you, we're going to get into a little bonus round where the four of us are going to go around and each introduce. Um, uh, we're going to overturn a rock and give you kind of like a little slept-on, creepy, obscure album that maybe you, you maybe you didn't know. Maybe you're not a poser. Maybe you're sicker than me and you knew about all these albums. I don't know. But the idea is you're probably going to find something in this batch that you didn't already know about, and, and we'll chat. When Tom proposed this episode for me, he, he suggested, because we're doing especially a slightly shorter discography, we combine two segments I regularly do. So some episodes are that full deep dive into discography, the other side of it is a, a series I've been doing called Death Metal Forgotten Gems, which I deeply regret the name of. But the the intent <laughs> was always to um, to say to, to shine a light on some albums that, that maybe I I've personally heard less in discussion. Um, I think as Will sort of pointed out earlier, you may well know all of these. We don't want to insult your intelligence of any of them, but they're just albums we we want to talk about because I've I've not heard other people going in on depth from them because. For whatever reason, then maybe bands have broken up or just albums that never saw the light of day so much of the time. Um, I don't know who, who wants to take the lead in this. Um, uh, uh, gen- well, generally, what we do on our show when we go around our, rec- our round of recommendations is we go round table starting with Justin. Um, and then, since I'm the most important person, uh, you know, I, we end with me, and then my the, my recommendations, the music trails out the background of the show. Phil, since you're the guest, we you the know maybe you, we could you know you could go that honorary last position, and um, your recommendation will kind of take us out of the, the the episode today. Does that sound fair? That that, that sounds really good. If you're you're happy yeah. to let me take the the last spot, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I, generally, I'm the most important person, and I'm the know. most verbally challenged. So that's oh, why I go first. So yeah, we, so. we can't. We break. <laughs> well, I believe we in your in your part of the, the in your part of the territories. They call it uh, taking the piss, right, Phil? <laughs> we, we break balls over here. You know what I mean? It's all we do. Yes, I'm the the uh, jobber. They say that in my territory. Yeah, yeah. Back to the territories. Okay, Justin. <laughs> now that we got you go, now that we got you started up. All right, we we started you up just like Mick Jagger. Uh, uh, get get it on. All right, all right what well, do you fire, got? All right, fire I know up, you got brother. something good for me here. Yeah. So um, so I want to bring in uh, this gem, which uh, is new to me, and uh, I I was. Floored, absolutely floored of uh, why I hadn't heard this before. Um, would have been a lot cooler if I did. Uh, Wicked Innocence, yes, from Salt Lake City. 
Thank you. And I want to call out their 1995 record, Omnipotence. Beautiful album. Um, out on Nap- Napalm Records, hmm. uh, which does something different nowadays. They do something very different. They do Hello, something- Scott Stapp. <laughs> yeah, they do something a little bit different nowadays. Not judging. Wait, Scott Stapp is on Napalm Records? Yeah, he found a guitar player with eight strings, and then he said, let's do it. Oh, boy. It's good. Um we're all we're all talking about good things. Yeah, so uh so Wicked Innocence, man. Uh what a cool uh record, uh, Omnipotence. Um somewhere living somewhere in between uh Demolic and and Atheist. Mm, uh very yes. very very cool. Um almost dipping into like a, a New York influence kind of uh death metal and 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 slammy kind of shit. Uh you know, I liken it to a Dying Fetus cuz my vocabulary is limited. Uh, <laughs> but it's very, you know, uh the 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 breadth of, of this record, the, um, uh, the again the, the the sort of genre mixing and and the fluidity of it, along with the, these uh, early frog style vocals, um, but the vocals in and of itself are, are a whole nother conversation. Just as eclectic and and uh, spanning as the instrumentation, um, very very cool. Uh, there's a band that I also love from the '90s uh, out west. And two two thousands uh, cephalic carnage, which I uh, couldn't help but draw a parallel to. Uh, it was just fantastic. And then you know we were talking early on in the episode about how we came into heavy music, and uh, and we kind of draw these parallels based off of you know bands that kind of sparked our uh, interest in, into going deep into the origins of death metal and these different subgenres that we love. And one of those bands that I love is the Red Chord. And uh, again, like drawing those parallels between uh, what Wicked Innocence is doing, kind of incorporating these pseudo-deathcore-y kind of style breakdowns uh, um, it, it going on here. I, I likened a lot to uh, to uh, the Red Chord. You know, I, I hope they listen to this. They had to have because, I, you know, allegedly, I think there's some riffs, actually, uh, <laughs> that they might share, uh, which is just fucking beautiful. Uh, so... Um, uh, you know, I, again, I can't say enough enough beautiful things about this record. The way it kind of go like goes into this deathy, uh, you know, atheist, atheist uh, pr- like later death, uh, atheist kind of style prog parts. Uh, you know, these leads are kind of beautiful, and uh, and they but they just kind of weird and everything up. You know, they tie it into this sort of like Finnish kind of style, and uh, and I think I thought it was also kind of notable to mention the lyrical themes of what was going on here because dipping into the lyrics, it's a little. Uh, atypical of what you would find from uh, you know mid early nineties uh, death metal bands, but it, they were very it was very heady, you know, very uh, potentially uh, hallucinogenic influenced. Um, oh boy, oh, cool. uh, microdose uh, lyric, lyrical kind of content, you know, right. uh, dipping into the depths of, of the human psyche and, and exploring questions of uh, you know the origin of consciousness and ideas and trying to decipher the meanings behind addiction and suicide. You know what I mean and and uh, and even uh, you know the possibilities of life after death, and they have there's a song in there called the Greys too. So we're getting into aliens. So, oh, nice! Yeah, so we got a little bit for uh, for everybody who likes to uh, alter their consciousness or whatever. And my consciousness uh, definitely felt altered after uh, doing several listens through listen throughs of Omnipotence by Wicked Innocence. Man, I fucking love this shit. I love this band. They are the best band ever. Period. Um, no, I like I like this a lot. Uh, and Will, so I showed you this, and you were like, "Oh, dude, brought this in." 
Now you're going to learn me on some things. <laughs> Phil, you familiar with this album? Yeah, so um, I got Justin's sort of message about it last of, of the lot of your recommendations, and it was the one I was familiar with, and I was very excited to see this one. Because oh, it's got that, that kind of mix of styles I really like, of that early kind of technical metal, technical death metal, but then with that very strange kind of brutal edge. Like, the vocals are not what you would expect on this album at all, but they work so well. Like, because the music isn't, like, you know, that kind of more slammy kind of death metal, but it has those those ultra lows, but they just fit so well. Yeah, it, it's a spectacular album, this one. Yeah, great band. They, um... Uh, I... The way I kind of explain, like they do some clean vocals type of stuff. That's a little bit more maybe like that Sabbath. I I I hear it. My interpretation is like a Sabbathy doom meets Alice in Chains type of vibe that they bring in every once in a while. Mm. And later on in their catalog, they explore that side a little bit more and more. Not and that's what I was just to explain. That's something I said earlier in the conversation about how like some bands introduce clean vocals. I was kidding. I don't hate everybody with clean vocals or anything like that. We we we, we joke. We take the piss, we break balls. We've talked we a lot about Queensryche yeah. on um, podcast. Yeah, we're not going to get into Queensryche or pro wrestling or any of these other hot button issues. That, that we <laughs> those are all red flags. Queensryche, pro wrestling, anime. I'm, I'm I'm done for the day. All right, it's a stressful life enough. Uh, <laughs> we're going to stick to uh, Wicked Innocence, but yeah, great band, and they always come up in the conversation with like people that are like a little bit under the surface level death metal. When when you talk about the burp vocals, the frog vocals, uh, Demolich is well known, obviously in the underground at this point. But Wicked Innocence, another band, much like Intestine Ballism, that I'm waiting for those reissues. Yeah, uh, a little vinyl, little tape, something come down the pipeline for you, boy. I don't want to go on Discogs. I don't. I don't go on Discogs. I just get upset, and I'm trying not trying to maintain right now. Uh, I'm a little upset, but I'm trying to maintain and get through the podcast. Hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was mentioning before they uh, they uh, uh, there was a small distro that you know through Bandcamp they put out maybe uh, twenty or forty tapes of this yeah. record. And, those are gone, you know. Yeah, they uh, sell out. Save. You keep five for yourself. A year later, they're <laughs> worth a hundred bucks on Discogs. We know the hustle. Yeah, you got to start doing that. We know what you uh, tape label guys are up to yeah. out there. We know, no, and, and we like it, and we like yeah. it. Uh, right. But yeah, uh, great fucking bands. Uh, I'm happy to come across it, and uh, yeah, it's a, another one of those bands that kind of completely, uh, you know, it was like another door opening for me. So uh, I love when that happens. Uh, finding an old band that uh, puts the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Nice. Oh, I'm so happy. Kind of like a, in some of the ways that Faith No More blended like metal and funk, like Wicked Innocence kind of blended like dark grunge and guttural death metal in a weird way. I I don't know. Am I I off base? Am I I, crazy with that? Well, I need to get deeper into their discography, but uh, that just even makes me more excited. You're still innocent. You got to get a little more wicked. I get it. It happens. I, I have done a return to innocence. Yes, yeah. I, I have. <laughs> Let, let's, I have. <laughs> let's return to Tom. <laughs>
Tom, you recommended something I'm excited about. Violent Dirge. And I can't help but think that's the finest name for this band because their music sounds so violent. It, yeah. A lot going on. Yeah, it is just... You're not getting this stray cat indoors. This is like running, huh. avoiding human contact. It is just so... All right, let me get into the details first before I get uh, gushy. Okay, so the album I'm talking about is Elapse. Yes. 1993. Oh, boy. Oh, when you hear that album and you go, this is from 1993, you start scratching head. You're like... Country's important. Country's important. Oh, yes. Poland. Because it's it's classified now with those ex-Soviet kind of uh, under-the-radar early 90s bands that are really popping up nowadays with YouTube and social media and all right. that sort of thing. But there's like a plethora um, uh, of all these like kind of like, you know, bands from the, from the former Soviet countries that maybe didn't have access to the distribution and that sort of thing at the time. We've touched on it on the podcast. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that that goes into the conversation. Of course. Um, so, I mean, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the only band that really smelled like this band in my head is that is Aspen. Which I found a few yeah. years ago. I brought I brought into the podcast like yeah. episode two or three. It was one of those like finds on YouTube that was like this is such gold. Which is like if you're not familiar with Aspect, it's it's uh, thrash metal with a lot of death metal influence, but always staying thrash and just wild, crazy progression stuff. Like um, guys playing their guitars like they're ten years in the future and laying it down in the '90s, um, early '90s. Same thing here. There's something about the writing with Violent Dirge's Elapse that is... You cannot separate the thrash from the death metal in this. It is so perfectly melted. It is so aggressive. Um, The bass... It's got this thing that you kind of hear only in more slammy stuff. More like... um, I I would say like, you know, listening to cranial impalement by Discord. Like, that's where the bass comes from. But it's like... It doesn't sound anything like that. Well... my impression of the bass was that well first my impression of the overall mixing on this album mm-hmm. is that every member of the band is angry at every other member and wants their them to be louder it's like a competition yes. mm-hmm. and then my impression <laughs> of the bass is that he's probably the biggest guy and yes. he won <laughs> right. like it's a bold move to mix the bass twice as loud as the guitars mm-hmm. in any form of music let alone death metal but <laughs> it all works though like it, I'm saying this yeah. all because it just creates this crazy like you're in the middle of a battlefield <laughs> What yeah, a good story. I, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I can't agree more, man, because I'm listening to this, and I'm like, this bass is just so fucking loud. And, <laughs> and in 2021, you're never going to hear an album that does that. No one is ever going to mix bass like yeah, this again. Exactly. That's totally... It's it's gone. It's gone. The 90s happened. We're never going to get that bass sound ever again. So enjoy... Here's a perfect example. Uh, getting, getting that sick bass tone. Uh, vocals are just fucking sick. The leads in this are just... Um, they're, they're haunting. They're really haunting. Uh, also, not too, uh, not too crazy. Not like shredding. Not a, a shit ton of tapping. There is all, there is all those elements there. But it's not like that's not why you're there. You got you, you to pay attention because it goes by quick. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, this shit is fast. <laughs> Either way, this is a must listen. Uh, if you're listening to the show, just listen to this right after. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes here. If you allegedly do uppers, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Phil, Phil, are you familiar with Violent Dirge? you know this album? So this one was totally new to me, and I was absolutely blown away by it. 
Uh, I love that, that kind of the mix it has with the whole thing. As you say, everyone fighting for attention. The whole thing feels like on the verge of collapsing. Yeah. As Tom said, a way that will never happen on an album post like 2005. Like, this is a very amazing product of the 90s. And I, I love that, like, that insane energy to it. And that, that bass, as you say, that bass, like, turned up to 11. This is like salt rubbed eyes level ridiculous <laughs> bass tone. Maybe not quite as cool as that, but it, it is like as in your face as that album. Yeah, it, it really is kind of the defining factor in this, even though everything else is super sick too. Yeah, uh, this band did fall apart. Um, yeah. <laughs> they only made it to 1995. They oh, did no. do one more full length. I haven't uh, listened to it yet. Just for transparency, I'm going in. I will be. But I was uh, this album, man. It's it was. Lot. I also love that a band that sounds like this and is from this time and place has what almost looks like a, a kind of like classic New York graffiti style logo. Like yeah. the logo almost looks like it, it looks like maybe it was intended to be kind of like that seventies stoner kind of psychedelic writing type of sure, thing. But yeah. it ended up looking like graffiti a little bit. Yeah, it, it definitely does. The logo is strange. It doesn't really, like, if you saw that logo, you wouldn't really know what kind of band it is. I would think stoner metal if I just yeah. saw that album cover in the record store. Yeah, it's like a it's like a, a more 3D version of Acid Witch, gone yeah. symmetrical. You know, that, it has that certain line cut to it. It's like a Lost in Translation logo. You know, they just, they just liked it because graffiti is tough. Dude, it is you, very if, tough. If, but it means any, something different in the New York. The only thing not lost in translation is I feel like I know the bass player after listening <laughs> to that album. <laughs> I feel like feel like I feel like we're old friends. <laughs> oh, I love it all. Very up close and personal with the bass player after listening. Amazing. Hell yeah. But, so Enjoy that's that. Violet Dirge Elapse, right? That's 93. right, Elapse. 1993 on Carnage Records. All right. I, uh, I I do things a little differently. Oh yeah, I'm a rebel. <laughs> Sorry, guy. <laughs> I'm an outstrider, just like a bat. <laughs> but I don't. I couldn't fit those tights or wear the face paint. All right, uh, ba- no. All right, Batman. I, what do you got? I I didn't it's- recommend. I'm not recommending an album. I'm I, I'm I'm a free thinker. I <laughs> I didn't restrain. My, I didn't restrain my whole outlook on life like you guys did. Oh, great. No, you, were in, you were in handcuffed I, by the format. The whole reign. No, no. The no, approved no. format. The, the <laughs> band that I'm recommending never actually put out an album. They put out a series of four demos and four splits with other bands. Okay. Um, they were actually the other band, but it, it all ties in because we talked about intestine battleism at length tonight. And I first discovered, or I, I should say, I first actually remember reading about intestine battleism and really getting into them in Coroner's Report Zine, uh, which was there were several Coroner's Report zines because if you're doing a zine in the '90s, That's Coroner's the Report yeah. is the is like there's like three or four. But the one I'm talking about, I believe the guy's name was Chris Wong. Uh, he was a gentleman of Asian descent who was based out of Pennsylvania and did Coroner's Report Zine in the '90s. And he had a tendency to specialize on bands from parts of Asia. And the, and the episode that I still have 
of Coroner's Report Zine, he did a whole lot of Japanese bands, interviews and reviews and scene reports and stuff like that. And that was kind of like, as a teenager into underground death metal, my little funnel through to like the Japanese scene uh, was that Coroner's Report Zine. And he covered also Desperate Corruption, the band I want to recommend. Uh, as well as Intestine Ballism. And Desperate Corruption is also another band on that Bizarre Abnormality compilation, kind of a cult uh, compilation tape put out by um, uh, Bloodbath Records uh, of Japan in the 90s. Another, like, if, you get, if you're getting into the whole old-school Japanese death metal grindcore thing, Bloodbath Records is something you got to check out, too. But uh, Desperate Corruption, a really cool band. You can. I'm hoping that maybe somebody will re... This is like the whole spirit of this episode is please reissue this yeah, band. Reissue, yeah. Like everything, yeah. Wicked Innocence, Intestine Ballism, Desperate Corruption. Because um, they put out the, all these demos and these splits, some cool material. Uh, just, you know, there's... I can't make jokes about the bass player... I can't say that they were some crazy progressive genre bending band. Does your Just, band not stand out? Yeah, I mean it's not like there's not a lot. There's not a whole lot to go on. They have personality. It's kind of like a, a, um, a death metal band that maybe has. What's interesting about it is for the time period and maybe even the region. Though I'm not an expert on old school Japanese death metal. For the mid '90s, they were kind of doing uh, a more. Unite, more like American brutal death metal influenced grindcore thing. Like they were kind of steeped in the grindcore scene. They were doing splits with grindcore bands and stuff, but they leaned into death metal and they leaned it into into a way that was a little bit more contemporary for the '90s. Desperate Corruption. Um, so again, like I don't want to talk it to death. Just something really cool to check out. That kind of I, I feel like floats under the radar nowadays and maybe didn't get a chance. Um, uh, just a cool, tight band that tried to combine, I think, some of the more, um, like, political, social-political commentary aspects and uh, uh, community aspects of grindcore aesthetically with the sound of uh, brutal death metal that was, like, uh, coming. You know, the brutal death metal that was going to be here in a few years if you were in the mid-90s. They were a little bit ahead of the curve on that if you listen to. So, Desperate Corruption, a really great death grind band from Japan that, in my heart and mind, is associated with intestine ballism just by way of um, that co-release compilation they were on together and being mentioned in a lot of the same circles, man, you know. You guys get a chance to check it out, anybody? Yeah, I really like this one. It's interesting. Um, for me, like, the, the band it put me in mind of was, like, really early vomitry. Like, that kind of a band taking a lot of influence, like, the death metal. Maybe not entirely in terms of delivery, but the riff writing really put me in mind of those first couple of albums from them. And actually, what's quite interesting, you, sort of, you bring up it being a demo versus um, Tom's being an album. Actually short of the album cover being like kind of a bit rough like this could have been released as an album it sounds yeah, excellent yeah, like yeah. I'm, and and you know it's half an hour long it's it yeah they like really fits like violent dirge i think is probably the more demo sounding of the two releases <laughs> almost i would say so take that tom amazing, <laughs> amazing. gotcha tom <laughs> try again tom god yeah. damn it <laughs> bring something uh, a little more polished in yeah. next time huh dude i okay. win i win unless the bass player is listening whoa yeah, yeah he's yeah, yeah then i'm then uh sounds Good fantastic uh, yeah, the fun. only you know my only note is i wish there was more bass Let's be done, 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 let's be done
We've had a, a long conversation. We've talked a whole lot of death metal. I brought something up. You brought something up. He brought something up. Phil, uh, you're the guest of honor in our house today. We need you. Uh, you 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 did bring up a recommend. We know about your recommendation because we're more important than the listeners. They don't know yet. No, I'm just kidding. We love the <laughs> listeners. But um, you got something really cool that you brought to my attention that I've never heard of. Could you please talk about it, sir? Yes, so this was a a find from earlier this week. Um, I was trying to find something that maybe hadn't come up before. And, you know, you guys covered a lot of old death metal. So finding something unique in that was a bit of a challenge. But this is something bizarrely I found from a really well-written Metal Archives review documenting the history of this band in a kind of another related band's uh, album review. A guy called Robotic on Metal Archives. I've really done the research on this because there's doesn't seem to be a great deal about this band out there so the band is network and the album is lnc um and it's released in the uk in around 1999 i think the the original preston came out and what's really interesting about this is the drummer steve clark the guy who led it much like how um death's like human album was a load of death metal musicians who had got into kind of jazz rock fusion stuff and infused that into the sound of human this is the opposite. This is a load of jazz rock fusion guys who decided they wanted to have a go at death metal. And I think that the mission statement Steve Clark put out, which is kind of arrogant in hindsight, but I see what he's getting at, was, you know, he's somebody who's come up through the British death metal scene, which is a very kind of raw and in-your-face sound, and was like, we want to inject like the musicianship of jazz rock fusion into that kind of fury. So... He teamed up with a lineup of um, Sen Olufsen of the British like death thrash band Gamora, who have two really solid albums, oh, uh, Algie Ward of Tank album. on bass, and then two other like actually I think it's a whole group of other um, jazz rock fusion guitarists to make this very kind of um, extremely experimental, very self indulgent in a many in many ways. There's like a three minute long drum solo on one of the tracks, but essentially jazz rock fusion take on death metal it has throughout it has the massive detuned heavy guitar tone on absolutely everything which is totally alien for that genre there's not a huge amount of screen vocals but they are very present on quite a few songs and steve clark's drumming does while doing all the kind of rhythmic madness you would expect of jazz rock fusion focus very heavily on the double kicks it's not, I wouldn't say it's the greatest execution ever. Like, there are moments where, even for me, I'm like, okay, that's a bit too much of that style. Like, I, I enjoy yeah. that kind of uh, sound, but they, it can focus on the lead guitar for too long. But there's something so incredibly unique about this, because I've never heard a group of musicians from this background tackle the genre of death metal, something that, especially in its early years, is completely kind of alien to jazz rock fusion and despite this album coming out in 99-2000 I think it was mainly composed and recorded in around 1996 as I say the um, the kind of information around this is fairly fairly kind of well hidden and, and it seems to be completely unknown so I 
I've ordered like a physical copy of it, like again, second hand, but, but the YouTube video I found it in had about 100 plays on it. And to like go, like to kind of point out how weird it is this is unknown, um, keyboard legend Jan Hammer has a guest solo on it. Wow. Like, <laughs> like but the, the album is totally unknown. The band themselves did one more release after this, which actually came out before for for reasons I've, I've never been able to find, um, under the name Necropolis, and they put out the album End of the Line, which doesn't work quite as well, sadly. It's one where they tried to become more of a death metal band, but the, the unique element they had there was long jam solos, and it's got some great riffs and brilliant moments, that album, but the solos go on too long, whereas... Network LNC actually has some absolutely fantastic moments to me, and I, I really, the drum performance, Steve Clark on it, is amazing. There's some riffs which are just made by these brilliantly inventive drum beats he's, he's come up with to go over, like maybe a slightly more straightforward guitar passage. Yeah, so was this new to all three of you? Strange surprise. I, <clears throat> yeah, the drumming just stuck at the most, to be honest with you. It was less like the way it carried. Some of, some of the riffs and stuff. Uh, really interesting bring. Uh, I need to steep in this more because I felt a little dumb listening to it. Yeah. The, like, the, the last time I felt this dumb, uh, which was, uh, I would think I was like 14, and uh, I found Into the Moat. And that's another like group of music school jazz kids trying yeah. to play the, the more modern kind of death metal shit. And they did it in a in a way that was so above and beyond unique to what was going on around at that time, uh, probably with a little more intention than, or a little, uh, maybe a little more experience of, of what would pass. Uh, you know, being um, a heavy band, you know, using those jazz chops or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the, like jazz fusion kind of stuff. But the, the, the same way uh, of, of how I felt like like those drums were completely alien those like clean riffs were completely alien that's how I felt listening to uh, to, to Network uh, here and uh, it just makes me kind of want to dive a little bit more deeper into it and see if I can figure it out a little bit but it was exciting uh, very yeah. exciting listening absolutely yeah, really interesting album man I, I definitely that's the type of thing where I, I kind of see the cover art and I hear it and I'm like I want to I want to own this I want to track this down see if it came out on vinyl or something They're really interesting and the more you talk like Jan Hammer's involved just really and you mentioned the bass player was the guy from Gamora did I get that right? Uh, the the vocalist is from Gamora the bass player is from Tank I believe although Gamora's bass player gets involved on the next album the the Necropolis one I think that's the way around as I say the information on this is fairly Hard to track down. You're you're right. Yeah. Uh, Mama Talam and John Clark is the bass player of Gamora, who was in Necropolis. Interesting, Clark. I wonder if there's a, a relation there with Stanley Clark, like you're saying, the drummer. And would you happen to know? Is the vocalist uh, Sven Olafsson? Is that the vocalist from Gamora? Yeah, yeah. He's, he he passed away a few years back. Oh, rest yeah. Peace. Sadly, I think back in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I kind of, all this is very fresh to me because I had not known of Gamora until a few months ago when I saw the tape for sale. I think it was Hell's Headbangers might have had it. And the Reflections of Inanimate Matter, that cover artwork is just so haunting and amazing and different, man. And the album, 
Uh, I'm not going to gush about a whole different album while you just recommended something different, but this, that, that, that Gamora tie-in is really interesting to me because uh, that Reflections of Inanimate Matter has gone on to be one of my favorite albums um, of recent memory that, that I've heard for the first time. And um, it's so doomy and dark and has such uh, uh, atmosphere and it's just like such a, a subtle, nuanced album. It's interesting to know that there's kind of a, a little connection there, you know, in terms of musicians and the circle of people. So it just, it just like kind of sweetens the deal a lot more with this network. Um, again, like when I, you know, when I saw it and heard it, it was kind of a revelation. It was like, why, why don't more people know about this? You know what I mean? And the only thing, you know, what came to mind actually um, was specifically uh, Dysrhythmia. And Crowless and kind of the Colin Marston scene. Not that they lean as heavy into the jazz, but maybe that's kind of something. The only thing that I have is a frame of reference that kind of, it, you know, it embodies that metal, but it's, with that virtuoso jazz. It's element. like such a juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah really, but, but like still extreme. Yeah. Interesting music, yeah. man. Interesting stuff. So really cool, man. I appreciate. It. That's kind of like the. I don't know if you could have dug much deeper and gotten much cooler and weirder, man. I don't know what you could have brought yeah, to the I think table you won. I that. think you won, you won today's game. Yes, <laughs> you win, Phil. <laughs> but my bass player. Yeah. You win. That, <laughs> that big Polish guy in Violent Dirge is going to have to take a back seat. Yeah. I think it's one it just bears mentioning because because it came out in 2000. It is the least cool release possible of a band playing a combination of, like, Old school, early '90s death metal and jazz rock fusion in the yeah. like, two thousand. Who was looking you for that? You couldn't pick two less yeah. cool genres. <laughs> That's probably why it really isn't remembered because it probably didn't get a lot of promotion at the time. It was like no way to market it back then. Yeah. What a weird thing. Yeah, what a I, cool I, thing. I feel it's like something like Gary Moore's Coliseum too, where that guy tried to do like a kind of really out there jazzy prog album in like the early '80s, I think, and it's just completely unknown despite. It's Gary Moore. Like, I think this is a similar vein, but with a, a death metal influence. Yeah. If only they had a music video uh, kind of shot like half in slow motion and like a field with like hay burning, and they were singing about voodoo. Ah, stop! It just, it's God smack <laughs> talk. Yeah, it keeps okay. coming up right, behind yeah, the right, scenes, was, and now it's right. getting into the show. All right, uh, cut that out, Tom. So we talked uh, about a lot of stuff. We talked about intestine ballism, and then we gave you four other bands. All right, if that wasn't enough for you, I really think um, I was like I've I said before, intestine ballism is one of my personal favorites. I was happy to talk about it, and I think each of you guys brought in something really interesting for your recommendation. I hope I brought in something. If people want to go down the little old school Japanese death grind wormhole a little bit more, that's something that kind of connects to intestine ballism in a, in a roundabout way. Um, and I, I, I'm really glad we were able to, to, to cue this up tonight and schedule this up, Phil. We appreciate your time, brother. For sure. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this, guys. It's an absolute honor. Like, yeah, I'm a massive fan of the podcast. As I say, very weird to actually speak to you in person. I'm normally used to <laughs> hearing you from a distance. <laughs> we got to do this again, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
something. Yeah, well, we got to meet up, uh, you know, maybe a couple of times a year or something, and we'll hash we'll hash out, you know, the schedule wise, and and maybe do a couple more collaborations and cross. Unless the less like your listeners get back to you, like Phil, what what are you doing? That's he's, right. Yeah, you got these three guys from from New York. That's a good point, Will. Yeah, yeah. So Fucking we'll see how we'll record. test the waters, Phil. No, but it all see. I'd be very up for doing more of that. And my <laughs> listeners know I steal all my recommendation from you guys anyway. So. <laughs> there he goes. Allegedly. Straight from the source. Well, that, that's awesome. It's all about spreading the metal, man. Spreading our love of it, especially these days when we're not going to shows and all that nonsense. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, Phil, I guess what we always do to close out, we say any last messages for listeners of our podcast... Um, so I would just close out by saying for anyone who's hearing us for the first time through your platform, thanks for bearing with us. Uh, thanks for allowing us to come along with Phil on the ride today. Uh, we, you know, we know it's normally just, uh, just Phil and, uh, thanks for bearing with us. And, um, you know, we appreciate it and come on down to the heavy hole podcast, man. We, you know, we got a lot more where that came from, man. So, uh, with that in mind, Phil, uh, any, any messages for uh, Heavy Hole Podcast uh, uh, listeners who are kind of new to the, the Phil Wadey experience? Yeah, so um, thanks a lot for putting up with a fourth voice in this. It was probably somewhat unnecessary. But yeah, like <laughs> if you like this kind of style of uh, diving into albums in great detail, I don't, as I, say, as I said earlier, like I, I don't do the interview stuff. On, the podcast is primarily just me dissecting albums at length, but I'm very up for you know covering albums that listeners suggest so if you you know if you like this kind of format and want to recommend weird death metal albums for me to cover well up and yeah please come along also i should say i cover a lot of genres outside of the death metal realm as well so if you're someone with maybe a bit of a broader taste in metal i do delve into like the black metal side of things quite a lot and you know genres outside there as well but yeah if you're interested it would be really cool Check Hell it out, yeah, dude. It's it's a fantastic show. Uh, yeah, so... One Phil, day- do you have a Patreon uh, or anything? I people- do not know. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to say that this would be the time to let everyone know. With that with that being said, then, uh, what? how can people check out Phil's Breakfast Metal? All the podcast apps. Um, yeah, or search Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook or uh, Twitter. Like, all those places, yeah, you should, should be able to find a link to it. All right, excellent, brother. And we're going to, as I said, as I'm a man of my word, we're going to ring everybody out now on your final recommendation like we do. Um, Phil Wadey, thank you so much for your time, brother. It was great discussing these matters, these very important death metal matters with you today, sir. Uh, You have a wonderful evening, and we'll be in touch. Uh